Well, I'm sure you've probably heard the phrase that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, a British politician who spoke those words, a man named Lord Acton, he also added this line. He said, great men are almost always bad men. I would want to, uh, I think generally he's right, but I would want to just maybe modify his statement uh, that it's not so much power that corrupts a person, but rather uh, someone who has power now has the ability to give rise to the evil, the corruption that's already in his heart. He now has the means to do whatever he wants and nothing can stop him. So it seems that power corrupts a person. So it's no coincidence that great men are almost always particularly bad men. Think of all the, the great so-called rulers in the world, and the more power they've had throughout history, they tend to be real wicked people. However, the desire for greatness, the desire for power, the desire to, be my, you know, to have myself exalted before others, this is not limited merely to those who actually attain power. It has its roots in human pride and sinfulness, which every human being, every man, every woman knows. If we had the ability to have everything our way, to make people do the things that we want, I think we would take it and we would run with it, and we would make it happen if we could make it happen. The lust for greatness, it's not just for political rulers either, as it can take all kinds of different forms. The desire for stardom, to be made much of by others and look good to other people, desire for popularity, desire to be a, a boss of a small business empire, just simply that desire to, to just have people do what we want. Just wishing everyone would just do things the way I like it. Desire to be made much of is often found in our own hearts, and it was found in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. They were considered rather simple men, uh, not particularly outstanding or notable in their day. Fishermen, even, even men of ill repute, tax collectors... They may not have had grand ambitions early on in life, becoming, you know, something super great. And yet, as they spent time with Jesus and they understood Him to be the Messiah, they began to battle a desire for a worldly type of greatness. Their desire to be made much of was awakened. It was revealed. Now, this is an issue that Jesus has dealt with. A number, he had to deal with a number of times in His three-year earthly ministry and time with these disciples. We've seen it already as we've gone through Luke back in chapter 9 and verse 46. They were arguing there about who was the greatest. So he dealt with it then. And now here again in chapter 22, we see this come up once again. And it's contrasted to the humility of Christ. Consider where we are in Luke's gospel. We've just had the Lord's Supper. This is the evening Judas will sell him out and betray him. This is the evening he'll be rejected. Uh, this is, and, and then the next day, he's going to go to the cross. This is what is happening. Jesus is pouring himself out for others. And here we have now this debate being renewed amongst the disciples about which of them is the greatest. And in response, Jesus provides the church with important instruction about service and humility. He shows his apostles what would be the proper nature of their leadership in the church and also by extension what would be appropriate for all Christians to seek after. And so I'll invite you to read with me uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 24, and we're going to go to verse 30 today. So Luke 22, verse 24. 
This is the word of the Lord. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, Jesus of course, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the first thing to note as we go through these verses is that as Christians, we are to reject a worldly pursuit of greatness. We're to reject a worldly pursuit of greatness. And just before we really dive into these verses, I just want to make just clear that Jesus is addressing disciples here. He's addressing those who believe in him. And he's talking about the appropriate attitude for Christians to have, particularly for the apostles themselves, uh, but also anyone today who would follow after the Lord in discipleship. Uh, A disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple. A disciple is not a second-tier type of Christian. Every Christian is, in fact, a disciple So a disciple is one who has confessed their sins before God. They acknowledge that before God, they are a sinful being. They've sinned against His righteousness. Someone who confesses this, acknowledging they've fallen short. It's one who is then trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that He has died and He has rose again in order to save sinners, that in His name there is forgiveness of sins, there is redemption. A Christian is one then who is trusting, even as we've sung about, not in their own righteousness, that they have goodness in themselves to commend them to God, but rather they're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. No man or woman is saved by putting off greatness. No man or woman is saved by, uh, by being humble enough. A person rather is saved by God's grace, and this is received through faith that is accompanied by repentance, by acknowledging our sin, turning from sin. And so these instructions we find here are for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus. He's showing that we are to put off now as his disciples this worldly pursuit of greatness and rather walk in humility. And so in verse 24, we're told here that a dispute arose among them. So there's an argument. Uh, this, this means there's tension here. They're, they're arguing together with one another. This is not just a discussion uh, they're, they're fighting about this. And the nature of the dispute is that, is, is, he says there, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? That sounds bad. <laughs> Likely this had to do with the order of authority in Christ's kingdom. They wonder, they are his 12 unique disciples, and of course, we know Judas is going to sell him out. Uh, he would be replaced in, in Acts chapter 1 by Matthias. Uh, but 11 of these men, at least, uh, they, they, are, they are his his chosen disciples. They will go on to be apostles. Uh, they have some understanding of this. And so they, they want to know who's going to be, how is this going to shake down? I think this is, in some ways, understandable that they would wonder about this, given their understanding that Christ's kingdom, would, in their lifetime, would be a political kingdom. They wonder, okay, Christ is at the head. 
who's on his right, who's on his left, who's his you know, main guys, and, and how's, it, you know, how's the hierarchy going to work from there? This is what they're wondering. And it is, I mean, this is a bad argument. <laughs> this is a, uh, not a good thing to be arguing about, squabbling about. It is embarrassing as we read this. Uh, but I think we should be cautious before we just dismiss these men as being really silly, as if we would never do such a thing if we were there. I think it's understandable at least why they were thinking this way, even though it is certainly terribly wrong. And so the correction that he gives is illuminating not just for them, but also for all of us as well. And Jesus does respond in verse 25. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Other translations just say that these kings, they lord it over them. Jesus is referring, of course, to the kind of rule that is uh, that's domineering, an authority whereby the king's rule is absolute, uh, and everybody just does his bidding. They do what he says. He makes the command, and everybody else just scurries to make sure it happens. He just decides what goes, and others do his bidding. Jesus adds... And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, a benefactor is one who helps and provides benefits for others. Now, this is not necessarily bad in and of itself, but it appears here that Jesus is pointing out the irony of this kind of a title. These lords position themselves as if they are acting for the benefit of others. They're supplying the needs and the interests of others. They're acting in the interests of others. And yet, in fact... These men are tyrants. In fact, they're there to have everyone else do their bidding. And if you think about, you know, think of your, the, whatever, a notable tyrant from history or today, they're always acting on, on behalf of the people. It's always the way it is. And yet you look at the people and typically they're suffering. And that king, that person exercising lordship, lording it over them, seems to have it all. This is typically the way of the world. And so this title of benefactor, oh, I'm just doing this for you people, for on your behalf, just trying to help you out. This is for your good. It's just really, in the end, another act of arrogance, another act of pride, of self-assertion. This is often, typically, the way things go in the world. And so after describing this type of greatness, Jesus says in verse 26, but not so with you. He's saying to these apostles that this is not how it must go with you. This is not to be your mindset. Your outlook on leadership within the church is not to be modeled after this kind of so-called greatness and leadership. They're to put off this thinking. They're to banish it from their minds. Not so with you, he says. They are not, as apostles, to lord it over people. Charles Spurgeon when he was teaching future pastors, he said this. He said, It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. We are to spend and be spent, not to lay ourselves up in lavender and nurse our flesh. So the obvious picture there is kings being arrayed in fine purple. He says that's not how we're to be. This is not how the apostles were to think of themselves. The apostles, we know from Ephesians 2 and verse 20, that along with the prophets, they serve as the foundation of the church, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. So they played a, uh, an important 
and a unique role within the life of the church. They are a unique gift given to the church. They authoritatively handed down doctrine, apostolic doctrine to the church. They were uniquely authoritative in this way, but their authority was not to be viewed in the same vein as the world. He says to them, not so with you. This is not what their authority is like. And if this is true of apostolic authority, then how much more is this applicable to us? If they weren't to exercise domineering type of authority, uh, how could any of us in the church do that, exercise that kind of leadership, that kind of dominance, when none of us rise to the level and prominence of an apostle? If it's true of them, then it's even more true of all of us, of the rest of us. And so there's obvious implication here for pastors, for elders. Any leadership in the church today is not to be of the lording it sort. We must put that off. We're not here to be served. So I do believe that this primarily is addressing church life. It's showing us that the church does not function like the world does in these matters, particularly when it comes to, to leadership, right? vying for positions of greatness and authority so that we can make others do the things that we want. So primarily, this is what Jesus has in mind. He's addressing, after all, the apostles here. He's correcting their understanding of what their roles would be. But I also think there's, there's implications here for our lives outside of the church as well. While it is perfectly acceptable... Uh, for Christians to run uh, companies, it'd be acceptable for Christians to be in positions of authority out in the world, even be kings wherever there might still be kings. Um, this does provide some caution and correction and even possibly rebuke. Our pers- pursuit should never be for a worldly type of greatness. That is not to be our aim as Christians. Where we might you know, that, be able to be in a place where we are able to lord it over others, uh, making them do whatever it is that we please. Uh, this text rebukes that. It rebukes uh, a lust we might have for the high opinions of other people. We might look good and feel good before others. It rebukes the yearning to make a name for ourselves through whatever venture, a business empire we might build, whatever. It rebukes treating employees that might be under us in some bad way as if they're there simply to serve our, our desires and our whim at every turn and they're just there for, for me. It rebukes the lust for fame and for praises of men, this uh, common pursuit of greatness. And so if God grants you success in your business, then you, you praise Him for that. that. That is for His glory. It's not for your glory. It's for Him. And so therefore, the implications would be that you would treat your staff, any who do work for you, uh, with dignity, that you would uh, treat them justly and fairly, kindly. Uh, Never, in no situation, is it appropriate for us to be lording it over others. And of course, this teaching most certainly uh, has implications for our homes. For men, as we lead our families, we know very clearly that our call from Ephesians chapter 5, is not to lord things over our family, not to lord things over our wives. Rather, we're told to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. Right? And as we'll see that, 
uh, even more as we go here, there's no more type of a sacrificial love and leading than that. That's the very opposite of just lording it over them. So we're to reject, we're to put off this worldly pursuit of greatness and being made much of, which ultimately is about me and about me being made much of. So we're to put that off. And then secondly, as Christians, we are to put on Christ-like humility and service. So if that worldly pursuit of greatness is out, what we're putting on now is a Christ-like humility and service. So in verse 26, Jesus now contrasts this worldly greatness with what's expected of the apostles. So look at verse 26 again. He says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So he first exhorts them to let the greatest among you, he says to the apostles, become like the youngest. Well, the youngest, of course, would have really no claim to rule anything. Uh, No claim to boss anyone around. They are the lowest in the family. Uh, The youngest would typically have the more menial tasks. Uh, They're not in a position of authority. And so Jesus here flips this idea of greatness on his head and defines it as willingness to be counted as the least. And then he goes on and adds, and the leader, the one who leads is to become as one who serves. So Jesus does not deny here that there would be leaders in the church. There will be. But he carefully qualifies what this is to look like within his church. The apostles he speaks to here were meant to view themselves not as lords over others, but as those who are serving the church. In commenting on this passage, uh, Daryl Bach in his commentary helpfully says this. He says, the point, of being made ultimate, the point being made ultimately applies to the full range of church leaders. The commitment is not to power, but service. The commitment is not to separate from those who are ruled, but to identify with them. Elitism is not the Twelve's call, but service and community among equals. The contrast to the world's definition of leadership could not be greater. I think there is a strong rebuke in these words. Some of the very hierarchical forms of church governance that are out there uh, where those who are at the top, uh, I, think, I mean, I just think of Roman Catholicism, for example, uh, with the Pope at the top, uh, everyone's there to do basically, essentially, his bidding. And then down from there, there's people under him, and there's this hierarchy, and the lowest on the totem pole are just commoners, and there's this distinction and separation between priest and average Christian person. And that's really the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. The word that he uses here for leader is used throughout the New Testament in a, few, well, in a number of places in the New Testament to refer to faithful leaders. So in Matthew 2, verse 6, there's a quotation of a prophecy about Jesus when it speaks of Bethlehem producing the ruler or leader who will shepherd my people Israel. In Acts 15, 22, there, a different Judas and a man named Silas are called leading men among the brothers. And it is used three times in Hebrews 13, all of which are in reference to the leaders of the church. And so such leaders are to view themselves as servants among equals. 
not as lords over other people. And then Jesus shows that he himself has possessed this kind of leadership when he walked the earth. Look at verse 27. He says, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The one who's sitting at the table, clearly we understand this, uh, is greater than the one who is running around doing their bidding and serving them and bringing them the food. This, again, is the normal way of things. This is the normal definition of greatness. The great ones are the ones who have others serving them. But then Jesus says, maybe surprisingly or shockingly, but I am among you as the one who serves. Elsewhere, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come in his incarnation to be waited on. Neither should we take that approach, as though others are here to do our bidding. The I here, when Jesus says, but I, is in an emphatic position in Greek, meaning he's drawing attention that even I am among you as the one who serves. Knowing that he is the Messiah, he is clearly the greatest one there, the greatest one ever, we'd say, But even Jesus took this approach. Even he was there to serve. In his incarnation, he modeled for us this kind of greatness, if you will. He modeled for us humble service. He became obedient to the Father, taking on a human form, laying aside his glory, and obeyed the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. We read that earlier from Philippians 2. He came as a servant. He came healing many of diseases. He came healing people of demonic oppression. He came and illuminated minds and hearts through preaching and teaching the pure instruction of the Word of God. He washed the feet even of His disciples. If you think of John chapter 13, that also happened on this very night when they took the Lord's Supper. He washed their feet and served them in this very menial task. And He came ultimately as a servant to work redemption for all who believe in Him. There is simply no greater person than Jesus. And yet there is also no greater servant than Him. And there is no greater service than that which Jesus came to provide, namely, redemption. And so it's truly a remarkable humility that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh to serve then fallen sinful humans and purchase our redemption. And this is what... Paul so beautifully captures in Philippians 2, which again we we heard earlier. And so we want to be quick to say that Christ's death, uh, his service, as I've said, was, was on behalf of those he came to save, that there is therefore a uniqueness to his service. Uh, it's unrepeatable. No other person can accomplish what Jesus accomplished. Uh, so he's much more than just a good teacher to follow after. His service actually saves people. Ours does not. And so we we just, of course, we always want to mind that very important difference between our service of other people and Christ. His is a redemptive service that he came to perform. However, we must not deny that this statement of his service is put before the apostles to move them to likewise pour themselves out in service to Christ's sheep. The apostle's service is not the grounds of anyone's salvation as Christ's is, 
But they were nevertheless to follow his lead by being servants. As he washed their feet, so they too were to go wash the feet of others. And so likewise, we are to do the same. Jesus has made it clear throughout his ministry that the Christian's call is to self-denial. We've seen this a number of places throughout Luke. And this is true of all believers. And it's in fitting with what he's talking about here. About humility and service of others. Back in Luke 9.23, for example, he said, it says there, He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Elsewhere he has said, Those who, Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the mark of discipleship. We deny ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about putting me first. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Christ. And this mindset of self-denial and of service, this is the antidote to prideful pursuit of greatness. As we repent of our pride, we seek to put that off In its place, we seek to put on Christ-like humility, Christ-like service, loving our neighbor. This is to be the attitude of leaders in the church, and it is likewise to be the attitude of every believer. Your Lord, if you're trusting in Christ, came to serve you, though he is in fact worthy of all glory and honor and worship. He is truly the greatest, and yet He came to serve you. And now He summons you to walk in His ways. And so let us see the way of Christ and be motivated to guard against a high view of ourselves. And may we see the beauty of taking this servant attitude of our Lord. As Paul, again in Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are servants ultimately of Christ, and we are servants to one another. And thirdly, as Christians, we are to put on hopefulness of future glory. We're to put on hopefulness of future glory. It's interesting that as Jesus is uh, turning the apostles' eyes away from earthly glory, away from earthly greatness, he nevertheless does affirm their exalted status in his kingdom here. And yet all of this is correction for them. So yes, they are apostles in a unique role in the church, in a unique place in his kingdom. But no, this does not mean that they'll be exalted in this lifetime, nor is it this authority to be conceived of in terms of lordship. Rather, they're to serve now, and they're to know that they will be glorified later on. So... It's, it's much like, as we think of Jesus and his incarnation, it was one of humility. He came and was humbled. He came in service, even to the point of death, but then he was raised and he's exalted and he will return in glory. And so likewise, the disciples, they would live lives of service, they would live lives of suffering, but would later enter into glory and they would rule with Christ. It is the cross now before the crown. And yet, even as Jesus is showing them this and calling them to this, 
It does not mean that the crown, the future glory, is to be lost sight of. He yet reminds them of this. In verse 28, Jesus says, You are those who have been with me in my trials. So he acknowledges here that, that, that these men have stayed the course through his earthly ministry. Again, obviously, that's been noted, Judas is the exception here. These other men, they've stayed with him through the trials, through his testings. And then he adds, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of God belongs to them. They have a rightful place in his kingdom. It is as sure as the, the, the Father's appointment of the kingdom to Christ. So just as the Father appoints Christ to this kingdom, gives him this kingdom, Jesus says, in the same way I appoint this to you. It is a sure thing. Jesus is reminding them of. And this kingdom that, of God that he appoints them to, he assigns to them, we have noted frequently throughout Luke, it is a kingdom that is here now, though it is not here now in its fullest form. It will come yet in a fuller, more glorious form when Christ returns. And so he's telling them here, he appoints for them a kingdom, and then look at verse 30. That, and this, that probably indicates purpose, in order that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so the purpose, or perhaps the result of the appointment to the kingdom is that first the apostles, he says, would eat and drink at the Lord's table. And we've looked at this the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the Lord's Supper that there will be a banquet when the Lord Jesus returns for His people to dine with Him. It is the day, the, the event that the Lord's Supper anticipates and looks forward to. Jesus refers to that here. And so this is, they've been appointed, this is the outcome. At the end, they're going to dine with Him in the kingdom. But secondly, this appointment means for these apostles that they'll sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Of course, you'll be shocked to know there's disagreement about precisely what this looks like and when that will be fulfilled. And to be quite honest, I'm not really prepared to give a definitive claim on that. It is possibly during Christ's millennial reign and could possibly be some sort of involvement in the final judgment, rising up to condemn the unbelieving Israelites, or it could entail both of those things. I think that's very possible. Uh, if you're familiar with John Gill, he takes that approach to it. But while the precise details, exactly how and when that plays out, is not crystal clear, what I do think is clear is that there is a reigning and there is a judging that will occur at a future time. And this is what the apostles were to remember. I think Jesus is telling them this, that they might place their hope in this. They might remember this. So it's not simply that they would live lives of service here and now, but that they were doing so in anticipation of the kingdom that is still to come in glory. That they were to exercise faith now in that kingdom by pouring out their lives as servants now, just as Christ did, with the hope that one day they would reign with Him. And while Jesus is speaking uniquely here and specifically to these apostles, these same basic truths also hold for all believers in Christ. 
So again, we've seen all believers in Christ are called to have the mind of humility uh, that Paul mentions in Philippians 2. And yet, our future glory is often spoken of in terms of reigning or ruling with Christ. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, he said, if we endure, we will also reign with him, with Christ. That was encouragement for the church as a whole. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus declares there to the Christians that were in the city of Laodicea, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne. Just consider that for a moment. This is the Lord we're talking about. And he says, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. That is not, it's likely not that all believers will literally sit on a physical throne with Jesus, but rather is symbolic of reigning with him. We will reign with Christ. Christ, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 8, we are fellow believers. If we're, sorry, we are fellow heirs with Christ if we are believers. And Christ is indeed the heir of what? We are told he is the heir of all things, Hebrews 1, 2. And so it is that God will one day graciously give us all things as Christ's co-heirs. He inherits all things. We are fellow heirs with him. God will graciously give us all things. When the Lord returns and when he makes all things new, we will inherit the earth with him. We will at that time be completely at home. Creation will be under the feet of our Lord Jesus, all of his enemies included, and so too under our feet with him. Nothing at that time will harm us. The new earth will belong to us because of Christ and his gracious redemption. We are co-heirs of everything with Christ. Not only that, we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.2, if you think of these, these 12 apostles being assigned to judge the 12 tribes, Paul says a similar thing, broadening it out to Christians in general. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, he tells us that the saints will judge the world, the unbelieving world. And then in the following verse, he says even the angels as well. He just throws that in kind of as an aside to tell them they should be able to sort out some of the problems they're experiencing in the church. He doesn't really elaborate on it. But in some way, that I don't think is made crystal clear in Scripture, believers will have a role in judging the unbelieving world and fallen angels. Obviously, judgment is ultimately God's. He is the ultimate judge. And yet there will be some sort of human involvement, clearly, lending witness and evidence, perhaps, to the justice of God's declaration and judgments. And so, as we hear this call to service, and to being the least, and to denying this worldly pursuit of greatness, we should do so in faith, knowing that the kingdom of God belongs to us as His children. A kingdom that we enter by faith in Christ now, that we are citizens of now, but a kingdom that will yet come in a much greater glory later in which we will be fellow heirs with Christ of all things. And we will reign with our Lord. And all things will be under His feet, and again, ours as well, because of Christ. 
This does not mean that we are made into gods or anything like that. It is simply because Christ has conquered and He brings us into this inheritance with Him. And this reality, this truth, this understanding of this future glory can turn our earthly trials, our earthly lowliness, being despised, into something that we can do with great joy. As we defer glory, or greatness if you will, to later, leaving any commendation there might be to the Lord, trusting Him with all of that. And this future glory is a key to living this life by faith now, uh, putting no hope in this world's grasp of greatness, uh, putting no stock in earthly riches, but rather laying up treasures in heaven. Do you see the, the direct connection? If we believe what is to come, what the Scriptures teach of the new heavens and the new earth, reigning with Christ forever there, that helps us see that it is not worth denying all that to pursue earthly treasures and glory and wisdom and whatever. It would be a foolish decision. And knowledge of what is to come can strengthen us and encourage us to put off such pursuits and, and joyfully, happily take up the role of servant. And so let us fix our eyes on that future, that we might live in this present time in service to God and serving one another. The truth is, we all come to the cross if we have come. We come to the cross as equals. It does not matter where we were born. It does not matter uh, what positions we've held in this lifetime. It does not matter how much of money, how much money we have or have made. It doesn't matter what kind of honors we've been given in society by men. Every person, if you come, you come to Christ as a sinner. You come to Christ with nothing to offer. You come, as Paul says, renouncing whatever gains we've made in our own efforts of righteousness, whatever the world has said of how great we are. We renounce it all and we come to Christ as sinners, guilty, looking to Him for His mercy and forgiveness. And when we are forgiven, we then join the company of the redeemed. We join the church. And there is equal footing here. As Christ came to serve us by making our redemption possible, He also calls us now to follow His example by likewise serving one another. And so may we put off all desires for worldly greatness. May we embrace the role of the servant that Christ has laid out for us. And whether it be in the church or in any other sphere of life as well, may we put off all desire for worldly greatness, viewing ourselves as servants, content to view ourselves as the youngest of children. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded of what your word says about humanity, that there is none righteous, not one, that there's no one who has done good. Father, we know that our only hope of righteousness is Christ. We are so grateful for the fact that you sent your Son into the world, that you've done this in your love and in your compassion and in your grace and mercy. 
And we thank you that he took the form of a servant, that he emptied himself by taking to himself a human nature, and that he came, he washed feet, he taught the scriptures, he served men and women, he showed compassion, and ultimately he served us by going to the cross. He served us by taking your wrath for our sins upon himself. Father, this is the greatest service the world could ever know or understand. Father, we confess that we often become selfish, that even as we trust in Christ and we know that ultimately we need his forgiveness, there are still times where our flesh rises up and we want to be first. We want to be viewed as something or someone. Father, I pray that you would make us content to follow after Christ, to receive the scorn the world would heap upon us for doing so, and to realize that we stand in good company, not only with Jesus who was scorned by the world, but also with his apostles and with the faithful men and women throughout the world and throughout history and today who continue to receive this scorn. Father, may we just get rid of desire to be praised by men. Forgive us where we are fearful of man. Forgive us where we've compromised because of our fear of man. Help us to joyfully embrace Christ at all times and help us to embrace the call to servanthood and humility. I pray that as a church we would love one another, that we would be quick to put others ahead of ourselves, that we would be quick to serve and to sacrifice in our own time, uh, our own resources, whatever it might be. Father, I pray that you'd give us a great joyfulness in this, that we would see that this is a Christ-like thing and that we would long to be like our Savior, that we would understand the greatness of his service to us and that we would be renewed in the truth of this, renewed in our minds, renewed in our hearts, renewed in our practice to, to go out and to serve one another. Forgive us where we fall short. Continue to be patient with us and, and sanctify us. Father, help us to continue to be patient with one another as we seek to do this better. Father, may we be quick to forgive one another as well. God, we just thank you so much for uh, your people, for your church, for your grace, for your mercy. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.